welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rocha, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our latest episode of our Arbitral Insights podcast series. And I'm delighted today to welcome Rachel Ansel QC of Four Pump Court. Hello, Rachel. Hello. Rachel is a very prominent QC. She's at Four Pump Court. She took Silk in 2014 and has a market leading practice in several areas, including insurance energy, construction, and international arbitration. We will be focusing on her international arbitration work today, but amongst other things, one of her most prominent cases was the recent business interruption insurance case, which many of our listeners will be aware of, which was the Financial Conduct Authority and Art Insurance UK and others, which went all the way to the Supreme Court. Rachel has several accolades to her name, and I cannot resist mentioning at least a few of them. She was awarded the International Arbitration QC of the Year at the Chambers UK Bar Awards in 2019, and in 2017, at the same awards, won the Construction QC of the Year Award. Amongst several of the wonderful comments that have been made about her practice over the last few years, It's hard to pick out a few, but I just had to pick out at least the following three. She's a ferocious and incredibly effective cross-examiner. She is a litigator's dream barrister. And she is one of the new breed of barristers. So with that said, Rachel, a very warm welcome again. And I'm delighted to be speaking with you today. Well, thank you very much, I think. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I think you'll be absolutely fine. <laughs> Just how stellar you are, you will be absolutely fine. Now, one of the things I always ask our guests uh, in this series is what brought them to law. So, Rachel, why you know why did you choose law in the first place? Okay, so I'm going to go back in time to when I was a student studying my A levels, and I'd chosen biology, chemistry, maths, and English with the whole idea I was going to drop one as I went along. I didn't. I kept all four. But I decided I didn't want to be a doctor or a scientist. But equally, I didn't think that I wanted to do an English degree. I wanted something I thought that was more analytical. And given my parents' sort of financial circumstances, a vocational degree felt like a more sensible option for me. So I arranged some work experience with a local solicitor and was absolutely sold and thought, that's it, I'm going to do law. And I must also be honest, because I was asked that question by my, who then became my director of studies during my interview at Downing. Mm. Uh, And I'd answered the questions very much along the lines that I'd said, but then I was very honest with him. And I said, and also, I I do actually want to make some money when I work. And I think law will give me that opportunity. (laughs) Always best to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, it didn't put him off. So he made me an offer. (laughs) Wow, wonderful. And then when did you get the desire to become a barrister right you know you know because you mentioned you did some experience in a law firm 
you know, what sort of brought you onto the barrister side of the profession? Well, within about two weeks of joining Downing, we had an early mooting competition, which I was lucky enough to, to win with my partner. And at that point, John Hopkins, who was my director of studies, says, Rachel, I think you're going to be best made for the bar. You've obviously liked the advocacy, you're good at it. And he also thought that I might be a little bit too stubborn, I think were the words he used, perhaps to, to, to be in a solicitor's office and being told what I was doing those early days without having my own autonomy. So it was very much him. And then I, he arranged or I went on quite a lot of mini pupillages to make sure because it was very daunting because I, there were no lawyers in my family. And, and the bar seemed like a, well, a frightening career choice at, at that time because it did have no security. You, you know, it wasn't that you were going to get your starter's salary or, or anything else. It was a small pupillage award, although I was lucky I did get a generous one. But yeah, so but it was very much with his encouragement. Well, yeah, well, you know, that leads very nicely into the next segment, Rachel, which is about those people who've mentored and sponsored you in the course of your career. You've already referred to one, but I wonder if you could share this with us, because it's always something where as we get more senior, we look back and we realise how much we've benefited from our mentors and sponsors. Yeah, so I'm going to start again a little bit further back, which is actually with my parents who said to to me and my sister, they had two daughters, you're going to have to be twice as good as any man at what you do. And that's incredibly unfair. But luckily, you have the skills to do it. And you've just got to work hard Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and get there. So they were a great support. And they really believed when I said, I'm going to go to university, no one had gone to university in the family. So then I said, I'm going to apply to Cambridge. Rather than saying, what are you doing? They were very encouraging. I will obviously mention John Hopkins at Downing. His wife was also a tutor, Cherry Hopkins. And between them, they really looked after me at university. And I turned up all proud with my English A-level, which I'd got a grade A in, which was the highest grade in those days. And I turned up very proud and I produced my first essay in Roman law. And um, John Hopkins put a line through it, then ripped it up. And he said, I've got no idea what the content is, but you may have an English A-level, but your grammar's appalling. Now, I come mm. from a state school. I don't remember particularly having a, a grammar lesson. And John and Cherry spent a lot of time just teaching me how to write. No criticism of my intellectual ability and very encouraging on that. But so in terms of mentoring, that was really helpful because you can imagine at the time when you're training, you think all oh, oh, your advocacy is actually going to be on your feet. It's not so much as the written word. And they gave me such a brilliant. But it was the encouragement and the belief in me and so those two. And then since I've been at the bar, in terms of at Chambers, David Friedman QC, who was head of Chambers, took mm-hmm. me under his wing from a very early age and was always very encouraging, but properly critical when he needed to be. From other Chambers, Chantal Doriez QC, who's now head of Chambers at Atkins. So she probably would hate me saying she was a mentor because she'll say that makes her feel old. But there, there is sort of five or six years between us. And when I joined Chambers, there weren't any really female construction lawyers in Chambers. So it was brilliant having a mentor of, of that type and now a friend. The same with Mrs. Justice Neris Jefford also. And then going back even a little bit further, though, is uh, Lady Justice Carr, who everyone I'm sure will know. I did a mini pupillage with Sue right before I'd even got called to the bar. And I thought then that she was a phenomenal woman. She was encouraging then, and she has remained encouraging ever since I first met her back in 1993. 
so they're the main mentors. I'm sure I've missed people to which I apologise, but they're the ones that come to mind. Well, that's a formidable list, Rachel. And, uh, you know, that's yeah. a lot of superb people who've yes. given you support and advice along the way. And, you know, one thing, before I ask my next question, I will tell you, I had a very similar experience when I was a very young lawyer, when I was a trainee solicitor in those days, an article clerk, learning the importance of precision in drafting. Uh, because it's one of those things, as you rightly say, a lot of people think advocacy is about the oral advocacy. Of course, it's very important. But written advocacy is really the dominant form of advocacy. And I learned that very early on in my career, too. So, so with what you've just said, it really resonated because people read more of what you produce than what you say. That's for sure. And, you know, a lot can be done on the papers before they've even heard you speak. So, no, no, thank you for sharing those very wise words. So, you know, in terms of all the experiences you've mentioned about all those positivities that you got from your mentors and your sponsors, how has that process shaped how you now mentor young and up and coming barristers and other lawyers? Well, I hope always that I keep the enthusiasm for the job and trying to say however bad it feels at 11 o'clock at night when the other side have just dumped three killer documents on you, which they've just suddenly found in the loft of one of their witnesses' homes. However bad that feels, there'll be an up point and stay enthusiastic about it. It's a, I, I, I love my job and, and I really enjoy it. And you've got to stay enthusiastic. And I think that's really important. We all have downtime. And that, that as a mentor, I think is a really important thing. You know, it's a, you're working your fifth weekend on a row because you're in a long hearing. But, you know, there's still upwards. So enthusiasm, I think, is very important. Having time, always making time, even if it's just a coffee. You know, we all need a break at some time. And so rather than trying to say, I'll have five minutes this afternoon, take the time to sit down because it's better to have quality time. Always be honest as well. So sometimes one of your mentees might come to you and say, it's outrageous. You know, this leader's just asked me to do that or this leader, she's just criticised me for that. At times that criticism may well be well placed or maybe correct. And I think you have to be honest. There's no point telling your mentees they're doing everything well if they're not. And that goes back to John Hopkins ripping up my first essay. Sometimes you have to be cruel to be kind, but then also listen because you can learn as much from your mentees as they can learn from you as a mentor. And that's especially true. And I'm sure you find this when you're leading teams. You've got to listen to the team to get the best out of the team. So mentoring works well. And especially as self-insured barristers, we're never taught to manage people. All we can do is learn from the people who we've been managed by to varying degrees of success and styles. So so I think that's that, that's what I've learned is to see it as a two-way process, but also to, to take it seriously, because without what others did for me, I wouldn't be where I am now. Thank you. And, and it's so true. And the point you made there that, again, resonates with me is about the importance of learning from each other and listening to each other. You know, I still recall the times when the bar was very different to what it is now. And... Uh, consultations or conferences would invariably take place at uh, the barrister's office. It would be one of those things where it would be very sort of ceremonial, quite magisterial in, in form. But, but actually, it's great now how we can all learn from each other. And, um, and you know, certainly a lot of people I've learned the most from are younger than me, are, are more junior than me, not just more senior to me or, or at peer level. I agree with you completely on that. One of the focuses 
of this series is international arbitration. That's obviously an area where you, Rachel, have a lot of experience and you're, and it's a core part of your practice. I mean, one of the things I always find fascinating is to ask guests how they first came into the world of international arbitration. Is it something you sort of stumbled upon or was there a case that you did that then sort of set the ball rolling? Did one of your colleagues bring you into a case? Just tell us a little bit about how the genesis of your arbitration practice came to be. So I was on the committee of TechBar as a very junior member. And the DTI and the Ministry of Justice approached TechBar to send out a delegation effectively to the Middle East to promote the English sort of arbitration bar and arbitrators. Uh, and in return to offer, we hope, sort of some legal services sort of reciprocal with training and the sort. Because you've got to remember, this is back in sort of 1990 or maybe just in the early 2000s, but a long time ago. So I went out on this delegation feeling a bit like a fish out of water because there were some very senior QCs on that trip and there was me, you know, barely out of nappies to use the colloquial. <laughs> and, and while I was out there, I met a few solicitors who had been referred to me by solicitors back in London. And as a result of that, I got my first DIAC arbitration, which I did. And that actually, it was, um, it was quite familiar because John Marin QC was the, the arbitrator. So it didn't feel completely... And so I did that arbitration and sort of never looked back, really. Uh, And what's been great, and I think mainly perhaps this picks up on the point we were talking about before, about working in teams. I think that's particularly true in the International Arbitration Forum, because what I love about international arbitration is getting to learn the different systems, because sometimes you'll feel like you're you're in a civil system as opposed to a common law and the different laws and the different way people work. And so to me, that's what I love about arbitrations. And you have a little bit more freedom with the, you know, you don't have to be quite so technical in your pleadings. You can perhaps make some of those points and use the flowery language you wouldn't always be allowed to or would be appropriate in court, obviously within reason. But but I, I like I like having both. But that's how it started way back then after a delegation to the Middle East. Yeah, and a trip to the Middle East, did that really sort of spawn the construction side of your practice too? Because the Middle East is obviously has been the source of a lot of construction disputes over the years. I think that's right. I was already doing construction, but very domestic based. But yes, you're right. And it sort of exploded in Dubai. And then obviously it went, it sort of reduced. And it's actually now in a much greater, wider region of the Middle East now than just Dubai. But yes, that certainly fueled my construction practice and my which I, I really enjoyed and obviously you got it's a it's very good I, I mean I like the construction work because of all the different sort of technical side of it which takes me back to my science A levels and you know really getting into the nuts and bolts about the geotechnical engineering for example which is obviously quite interesting in that region where different places have different sort of earthquake zones and things so yeah no, you know, I could talk to you a lot about this, but I, but I don't want to deviate in our discussion. But yeah, I've been involved in some fascinating construction-related cases in the past, and, and I always find the concepts in them. You learn so much, actually, that you just didn't know before. It's just one of these things you just keep learning on these things. No case is ever the same, and that's a cliche, but it's very true in construction. You know, so arbitration is now, as you know, Rachel, you know, it is the a dispute resolution mechanism for international disputes and um, in a range of areas. But it's not perfect in terms of how it operates. And I think all, you know, all of us who are involved in it would accept that. Are there any particular facets of international arbitration as a process which you think could be improved 
to make it better, not least for the consumers of arbitration? I, I think what I've been finding more recently is that you have certain, there are obviously arbitrators who are incredibly popular and we all know how difficult it is to organise diaries and we, we, we all have to do that. But I think what's important about arbitration is it retains flexibility because the parties, it's not only confidentiality, it's having control over your process. As you say, these are the consumers. Your, your client wants some control. Now, with all the will in the world, you start proceedings or you're defending proceedings and things change as you go along, which might require a change to the timetable. And it, it's no one's fault. But whereas we all know getting t- extra time or whatever in court can be very difficult, what I'm finding it's actually even more difficult sometimes in front of tribunals because the tribunals members will say, well, if we move the date now, you're not getting a hearing for two years. Well, that's Absolutely. unsatisfactory because that has the result that actually no one comes out of that very well. Neither of the parties are going to be happy because neither of them are getting the chance to put their case properly. If you're the party who needs more time, you feel unfairly done by. So I, I think that's a real issue. I don't know how we make it better because obviously everyone wants their arbitrator of choice, but it's that's something that concerns me. So I, I, I don't like that. Equally, I don't like tribunals who think, well, actually, we're not caught, so you can have whatever time extension you want. So then you find you're also sort of waiting for then two years for any decision. So I, I don't know how one does that, but I think that's something that I don't know, maybe one could encourage tribunals to perhaps have more maybe call it uh, you know award writing weeks or something so and and sometimes you don't always feel that tribunals have had enough time between hearings that they might not have read in which is quite difficult again if you've only got a week hearing you really need your tribunal up to speed I mean I'm sure they would then say well you know Miss Ansel what you need to do is do a better written oral opening and a written opening and we'll 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 understand it but that that's I, I think also length of time for awards is something that we probably need to improve because I think that does frustrate uh, frustrate clients when they have to wait and wait and wait and actually as an advocate can frustrate you because you think that things have got lost that you you felt you argued. From the advocate's point of view I think if I'm honest with myself and it's something that's obviously done much more in court is there's much more focus on oral closing submissions so you do a very full opening but then the, you, you have more of an oral closing submission. So, of course, you give all the transcript references and everything else. But do arbitrators really benefit from 300 pages of written closing submissions, which they receive eight weeks after the hearings happened, by which time everything, it seems to me, uh, and when I sat, it's very difficult to keep that in your mind if you've gone off and done however many other cases in between. I don't want it to be, sound all criticism of tribunals, but as I predominantly do the advocate's job that's where I see it from my clients I think as us as advocates and teams I mean I include in in that obviously international arbitration teams solicitors firms I think it's really important that we all look at do those closing submissions really help because they cost a fortune and they take so much time up everything you've said I completely wholeheartedly agree with and there are probably a few other things we could talk about but things you've mentioned there are so important because and the cost of international arbitration has really become very high now. And consumers of arbitration, i.e. the clients, are the ones who are really suffering the detriment of that. Lawyers like us, as fine as we are, as fine as we think we are, we are expensive. And then you've got the, you know, the time that you mentioned, the process takes, 
the cost of the arbitrators, the cost of venues, the cost of travel and everything else. Travel, of course, coming back now. But, you know, from your perspective, one of the things that I often think about is, and you made reference to this, arbitration can be a little bit more informal in the sense that you can do certain things you can't do in litigation. But one of the things that there isn't really a very strong focus on in arbitration is the ability to make summary decisions in the sense that if you want to get a summary decision from a judge, you can apply for one. But in arbitration, you don't really have that ability. I wonder what your experience is, Rachel, of should arbitration tribunals via the arbitration rules, which would have to be rewritten mm. and other practice, should there be a better practice of getting sort of more summary determinations on, on points, more proactive tribunals on points, you know, a greater case management of cases? I wonder what you think about that. Well, again, as long as it saves money rather than adds to it, because the problem with preliminary issues, summary determination, it can just end up, you end up having three or four hearings. So it does depend on the arbitrator or tribunal, I think, interacting with the parties as well. Because I think there are certain cases where I think they've scre- it's been screaming for a preliminary issue or a summary determination, and you just can't, no one wants to do it because they're too too scared of it. Now, um, it seems to me that if there was something that you could properly do, construction of a contract or something like that, to go back to your travel point and costs and that coming back, I, as an advocate, am a very firm believer of certainly having in-person hearings when you've got witness evidence and experts. I, I just don't believe it works. I think with submissions, there, there there may be an argument. And so if you could do part of a case, perhaps remotely, if that would reduce some of the costs, that might be an answer. But but I think it's very difficult. As you say, the rules would require quite a lot of, of thought and what that would mean if you got a summary determination that you weren't particularly happy with and, and, and having that as binding, because you never always feel quite so comfortable, I think, when things are done like that. Yeah, no, I know. I know it's one of those things, I suppose, because we always look at these things as you know, arbitration being a really good thing, which it clearly is. But there's always room for improvement. Now, one of the things which you are, Rachel, on any estimation, is you're a real role model for female lawyers. And you and I both know the importance, the rightful importance of diversity, equality and inclusion in the law. Mm. We've come a long way, as I'm sure you and I would agree. Yes. We were very young. As a pupil barrister, when you were a pupil barrister, when I was a trainee solicitor, and now as we're more senior in our respective fields, but there's still a long way to go. And I just wonder if you could share some of your thoughts as to what we can all do to improve these very important concepts in what we do, not just in the law, but more generally. I, I think you've got to keep challenging yourself and, and keep seeing where, whether you've got biases anywhere. And so within your own organisations or teams, making sure that issues of diversity are to the forefront. I'm about to retire as chair of Tech Bar. But we've had a lot of focus. We we set up a black inclusion group to do us a a paper and a report. And that was very, very uncomfortable reading. And it's very worrying seeing what is still going on. And so I think the professional associations, keeping it to the forefront, listening, and then more importantly, don't get a report and put it on a shelf and forget about it. Now, it might be you can't solve the problem in two or three months, but if you start to put measures in place, little steps it might be to start with, 
then I think you can really make a difference. And, and as I say, it's important to keep challenging and keep coming up with different ways of, of raising awareness. I think it's very important at what I call the outreach stage. So the, the student stage, if you like, the sort of sixth form and into university, because if you don't get someone and, and tell them that you can come to the bar or you can come to the solicitor's profession, we're not all white, male, stale, whatever the, the word is. There's a vibrancy about this profession. It's a great profession. Unless you tell them, you're very unlikely to ever get proper equality because that's where decisions are made. So I, I see that as a very important part of it. And so, for example, in Chambers, it's a small thing. We had a 4PC pride moot for for students to come and moot and Lady Justice Carr kind of came and agreed to to judge it but what was good is it just raised his profile and says you know we support pride and we're keen to support it and just those sort of initiatives which I say are very small steps but they just keep it in everybody's forefront and I do think outreach is important and then within you know I hope I am a mentor and it's very nice of you to say a role model but certainly a mentor to to young barristers be they male or female I hasten to add because I think we you know, but just to, because we all face different biases. And I think that's really important. I think the one thing that really irritated me as a as a junior female was when there was a suggestion that females required some sort of positive discrimination or, or, or quotas. Uh, and mm-hmm. it doesn't help, actually, because if you get a job you're, you're not right for, that's not going to help anything. But worse than that was when I took silk and you hear someone saying, well, of course she did because she's a woman. And you think that's really, it just sort of bursts your balloon. And so those sort of attitudes, you know, the idea that because people are putting in place measures to make it fairer, doesn't mean that actually all the women who took silk since, well, let's say in my year in 2014, got it because there was a quota. That said, I'm not a fan of positive discrimination myself. I think you just need to make it a meritocracy. So, sorry, I I think I pontificated a bit there, but I feel quite strongly about that. I loved it. No, honestly, Rachel, I love it because I feel as passionately as you do about these concepts and these issues. And we've seen a lot of change undoubtedly over the years. There has been a lot more. I mean, you know, look at our High Court bench. We've got Lord Justice Singh, we've got Justice Saini, we've got Justice Chowdhury, we've got a number of female judges We've had Lady Hale heading up our Supreme Court. We've got Lady Black on the Supreme Court, Lady Arden. But there's a lot more to be done because there's a lot more people coming through the system. And I do get concerned about social mobility issues. I do get concerned about people not being, quote, sophisticated enough, close quote, when they come to interview and where there are these biases. And I think the outreach point is very important. You know, we as a law firm do the same thing, Rachel, and so do other law mm. firms. I, I saw the pride moot that you mentioned on LinkedIn, and I was very happy to see that, actually, because, again, there are so many facets to diversity, equality, and inclusion. So, I mean, again, you weren't pontificating, <laughs> saying exactly what I was thinking. So thank you for, for being so candid. So, you know, now as we wrap up the podcast, it's, I always like to sort of finish off on a more lighthearted note. And I like to ask our guests a few sort of more sort of, uh, uh, how can I say, fun questions? Yeah. So I wonder if you could share a few thoughts on that in that respect, Rachel. Have you got a favourite film or films? Well, at the moment, my favourite film is Top Gun Maverick. 
which I oh, yeah. was enough to go to a private preview, which I absolutely loved. So that's obviously fresh in my mind. And then in terms of a guilty pleasure, I very much like Legally Blonde. Oh, yes. And it amused Lord Justice Popperwell because he was one of my referees for Silk. And he came to my Silk party and I informed him that in honour of the Legally Blonde, I had had my Silk's jacket lined in a pastel pink. Uh, and I made, made, he made me promise that when I was in front of him in it, I would flash him that jacket. So that, that's my guilty pleasure. You probably shouldn't like it, but I think it's a fun film. So. Oh, I, I think that's brilliant. You know, I've, I can't resist just briefly coming back to you on that. You know, Top Gun, I've not seen Top Gun Maverick yet, but I still uh, love the original Top Gun. I just think it's a classic and it, it'll always be a classic for lots of reasons. Yes. And last week I had the great privilege of watching Legally Blonde at the Regent's Park Open Air Theatre. And since you mentioned Legally Blonde, I couldn't resist <laughs> mentioning So last Wednesday, we saw the production and it was a glorious evening. It was a lovely summer's evening. It was just fantastic. So I just could not resist mentioning Legally Blonde too. <laughs> and how about music? Do you have any favourite singers, bands or types of music, Rachel? Yeah, you're definitely trying to embarrass me with these questions. So here we go. Take that. I've been a fan for years. <laughs> okay. Tom Jones, because I uh, yeah, we, we talked earlier about my interest in cricket, but I've also got a massive interest in Welsh rugby. So uh, ah. Tom Jones is obviously a, a part of that. And then if I'm being more serious, Maria Callas and uh, Ella Fitzgerald. So it's quite an eclectic mix. But but yeah, I'm afraid I have to put take that at the top of, of, of that list, I think. That's, that's a brilliant, actually, that's a brilliant. I tell you, that's, that in itself could spawn another podcast, actually. <laughs> That's a superb, diverse mix of music. I can't resist asking this question. Cricket or rugby? Oh, I can't answer that question. It's tough, isn't it? It's tough. Yeah, it's tough. I can't. It depends on the time of year in the winter, rugby. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've got to tell you, I love both, but I'd have to say rugby union would be my number one. Oh. I, but I love both. Yeah. And, uh, it, and they're both wonderful sports in, yeah. in, in very different ways. My last question, Rachel, is this. We spoke about travel coming back a bit more, and mm. happily so. I mean, I mean, I've been lucky enough to have been to the US a couple of times on business this last five weeks. I've been to the States twice, and thankfully, travel is coming back. Are there any places that you and your family love traveling to, or that you would love and you would love to travel back to sometime soon? So I think the sort of sunshine holiday, Mauritius, I absolutely love. Um, I'm I'm slightly limited to where I can travel because I'm allergic to all fish and shellfish and the same. So there's some places where the cuisine is such I just can't go. Picking up on our last conversation, I've been lucky enough to watch the lions in Australia and in New Zealand. Amazing. We won one and we drew the other series, so they were good series to go. And I've also watched cricket in Australia. So I'd love to get back down to Australia to, to watch some cricket and watch some rugby. I think it's South Africa next, is it? No, that's gone, hasn't it? Whatever the next Lions is. So I Australia. Australia. I do like, certainly like the sports travel. And then closer to home, I must admit, I'm someone who does love going to Paris. I, I mean, again, a fabulous range of places. Yeah. I tell you one thing, as, as we just finish up this podcast, um, I've not been lucky enough yet to go to a Lions tour. I really wanted to go to the one in South Africa just gone. Mm. Obviously, it wasn't possible due to COVID restrictions. But I remember the 2013 series you you mentioned when our lads won 2-1 and the final test match when it was an absolute rampage at the end. And then the drawn series in New Zealand when that controversial final decision. But that's why I think Roman Poitre 
is the second best referee in the world because he made that decision and the Lions therefore drew that series. So, you know, again, I could talk to you for hours on this. Yeah, well, I'd certainly would just add to the one in Sydney, which which was amazing when we won that. But you've got to appreciate as a Welsh supporter with eight Welsh players on on the ground, I've got a red shirt on, which is close enough. And when the boys won it, they played Tom Jones. It was like, I'm back in Cardiff. It had to be done. It had to be done. I mean, no, and I've got to tell you, Rachel, I think the best stadium for atmosphere in the home nations is definitely uh, in Cardiff. Um, I've been there in the open air and when they close the roof and it is absolutely extraordinary. And, uh, you know, I mean, I long to get back there again sometime soon. So, Rachel, thank you very, very much for being such a wonderful guest. I've loved our conversation and it's been really nice to talk to you about all these various issues. So uh, thank you very much and look forward to seeing you again very soon. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the ReadSmith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on ReadSmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReadSmithLLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.